This is an ABC podcast. Hi, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, talking about climate change this week and the problem of how to effectively communicate the things that need to be communicated about climate change. Because there's no lack of information. Scientists have been producing all the relevant facts for decades now. And yet many of us still find it possible to switch off from the climate emergency, to treat it as something of a second order concern, something to be fretted about after we've paid the bills and got the car serviced and done the shopping and finished that uni assignment. Maybe there's an opportunity here for art. Climate change has always been more of an engagement in a communications crisis than it's been an environmental one. And this is where, you know, I think there's a, a strong role for artists because they're meaning makers, they're crafters of experience, provocateurs, and they're adept at dealing with uncertainty and complexity. And one of the other things is they're often resistant to maintaining the status quo. There's a growing movement of artists worldwide who are dedicating themselves and their work to communicating about the climate crisis. And in doing this, they're not only changing the way that we think about and experience this crisis, they're changing the way that art is produced and conceptualised, changing the philosophy of art. One such artist is my guest this week. She's at the centre of a project called Refuge that's been running since 2016 and brings together artists with Indigenous communities, academics, emergency management professionals and local government. It's all a far cry from objects on walls in art galleries and more on Refuge coming up. My name is Jen Ray. I'm an artist and researcher, educator and facilitator. My practice looks at the intersections between art, disaster preparedness, speculative futures. And I'm calling in from Jar Country up in Castlemaine in central Victoria. Jen, welcome to the program. I want to begin with some discussion about art like yours that is rooted in and speaks to its social and political moment. Because I read a conservative think piece the other week. This was in the wake of the Sydney Festival boycott. And the argument of that piece was that the test of a good work of art is whether it speaks to us outside of whatever its political context might be. And the more political a work of art is, the more likely it is to become dated. So nobody needs to be concerned with the political conditions under which Jane Austen was writing to appreciate a Jane Austen novel. And that's why we love Jane Austen. But... With art like yours, particularly something like the Refuge Project, which is about climate disaster preparedness, politics of some kind, very broadly conceived, is at or very near the centre of the work. Do you think about what your work might mean to someone, say, 200 years from now, or is that not a concern for you? You know, there, there is the art for art's sakes argument that often comes up, and I think it's really important right now that when we think about art that's being created right now, that we we have to consider what's happening contextually. You know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said that we're going to see increasing climactic events with, you know, comp compounding and unprecedented economic, social and political impacts that are going to impact our ways of life. Um, Margaret Atwood has said, you know, we're not long, no longer talking about climate change, we're talking about everything change. And I think that in this context, this is what grounds my practice and my worldview. And it, you know, it, it, it's the way in which I think about any work that I create. So, you know, we are, we're talking about decades. We're talking 2030. You know, they said in 2018, IPCC said in 2018 that we're looking at 12 years before we start to see serious and catastrophic impacts. Well, we're already starting to see this. And so 
I guess as an artist, as a researcher, I'm not thinking about um, the art object that lasts for centuries. I'm thinking about what are the tools and the knowledges that I know that I can contribute to climate justice in terms of collaboration and working with communities around how can we be prepared for what may become, you know, the inevitable. I guess it's also true that we're living in a time when, for the first time, artists can't really take for granted the the notion that there is going to be some sort of society or culture centuries or even decades from now in which people just have the luxury to sit around and appreciate art. That was something that, you know, 100 years ago you could just go ahead and assume that would be the case. But now art is is being produced in this weird context where the future itself or the future of a of a society in which art has the place that we've always been used to it having that that is all very much under threat so presumably this is something that you're you're thinking about as well oh I, i'm i'm definitely thinking about this it's inevitable that we're going to see the ways in which we practice as artists be impacted, you know, in terms of touring and exhibition and producing and residencies as the long emergency continues. But at the same time, this is also, you know, a valuable opportunity for us to look at how we can contribute in our skills and knowledges to um, transdisciplinary collaborations. One of the tensions, though, that exists is how do we get our legs at the table of climate emergency policy and um, discourses that are happening at all different levels. Working within the Refuge Project at Arts House for the last six years, this is something that we've been working on. And we're dealing with a lot of the tensions about, you know, what is art or, you know, the didacticism that often happens with art science collaborations where artists are sort of in servitude to communicate to public audiences, you know, information around climate change or raise awareness. Now we're sort of in this position where I think if we can really find ways to collaborate and bring creativity to the table and ideas around intersectionality and reconnecting and storytelling and engaging, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, the hearts and minds of the public. I think there's a really a great way for the arts to be involved in climate communication. A lot of your work has addressed what you call the climate communication crisis. What is that crisis? What are some of the particular challenges that climate communicators are facing? Well, the science of climate change, you know, over the last 30 so years or so has only gotten stronger and better. But there's been a challenge for for the science community in terms of engaging the popular masses around just how how much of a crisis this is. And, you know, their mode of working for the most part was a deficit model of communication where if the public isn't understanding this information, well, let's just give them more information. And for the most part, it's it's been oversaturated. What we're seeing now is a lot of communications around call to arms messaging, around, you know, people coming together to work on the climate emergency. But we have to note here whose voices are not being heard, whose knowledges are not being represented in these discourses. So 
there was the Center for Research on Environmental Decisions making, they said years ago that in order for the public to fully absorb climate science research, it must be actively communicated with appropriate language, metaphor, analogy, and it should be combined with narrative storytelling made vivid through visual imagery and experiential scenarios. And this should be balanced with scientific information and delivered through trusted messengers and group settings. So one of the things about this is that when and this is something that we've done through the refuge project is that in the collaborations we are bringing the community to be part of the project as participatory actors we work with trusted messengers in the community and when we say trusted messengers in the community oftentimes people are more likely to make more adaptive decisions when they hear the message from maybe a colleague or a sister, somebody that they trust, as opposed to, you know, a top-down official or a scientist. So this is where we are starting to see in the disaster preparedness space, people understanding, oh, this is how, you know, a heat wave might affect me or my grandmother or my family. Well, let's talk about the Refuge Project. This is a uh, project that's been running, uh, it's, it's been bringing artists together with people to explore creativity in in disaster preparedness. Tell me more about that. What exactly does it involve and and what's happening now? So Refuge started in started based on a conversation in 2015 where Ang Heredwin Jones, who at the time was the creative director of Arts House and also the creative director of Tipping Point Australia, um, there were some conversations happening around artists working in climate change and climate change communication. And this realization that it didn't matter what was happening in this climate change communication space, that we were going to start to see some of the impacts of climate change. And how do we prepare for that inevitability? What ended up happening was we had something called a creative lab in 2016, where we had emergency services, local government, community members, and artists come together to really look at what are some of the things that we might be experiencing in the future. And Refuge was born thinking about how do we start to rehearse this all together. And so in 2016, we rehearsed a flood scenario. You know, what would happen if Melbourne experienced a major flood event? And what we did is we converted North Melbourne Town Hall, which is the home of Arts House into a disaster relief center for 24 hours. And we worked alongside the Red Cross, Emergency Management Victoria, Save the Children, as well as numerous community groups in the North Melbourne area. And the feedback that we got from Emergency Management Victoria was that they construct community events all the time to raise awareness around readiness plans and getting people, communities ready for disaster events. But what happened in Refuge 2016 was that we had 600, 800 people come through the door and they experienced artworks. Um, they got to participate in a sleepover, you know, which was a scenario, you know, that many people hadn't experienced living in the inner city of um, staying in a relief center. And it, it sparked some conversations about, yeah, what would I do if there was an emergency in my community? You know, do I have enough food to sustain myself for a week? Um, what would I grab if I had to leave the house in an instant? And each year, this is an iterative process. We have a dramaturgical strategy called playing in the dark. And playing in the dark is 
It's not an outcomes-focused activity. It's based in perpetual responsiveness, um, relationships and relationship building, and it's very process-driven. And so there are a bunch of scenarios that are sort of mapped out, and then we rehearse them. Um, and then we have an evaluation process where we really look at what are the outcomes of what we've done and what do we want? What are the questions that we want to put forth in the next iteration? So in 2016, it was a flood. In 2017, we rehearsed a heat wave event. 2018, it was a pandemic. Between 2019 and 2021, it was looking at climate-related displacement as well as cumulative impacts. So when you have um, multiple climate-related events. And right now, we are, um, we'll have a gathering we're happening in, I believe it's in April. I'd have to look that up for you. Um, you can look at the Arts House website for details on this, but we'll be having an event that brings back a lot of the artists and collaborators in Refuge to really look at where do we go next. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Jen Ray, an artist living in Castlemaine in central Victoria. Jen is working at the intersection of art and disaster emergency preparedness and speculative futures. And in doing that, she's also reconfiguring the conceptual map of what art itself can be. Jen Ray is going to be speaking at a free public event in Melbourne a little later this month, and I'll give you more details about that at the end of the program. It seems to me that a big issue for climate communicators generally is that the the bad actors thus far have been so much better at, at doing the communicating. You know, I mean, it's a it's a larger issue. It has to do with oil company funded think tanks and and people who are, who've been spending decades and, and a lot of money honing very simple messages like taxes are bad and leftist elites don't care about you. And then whenever anyone tries to get any any sort of meaningful climate policy off the ground the right can just deploy any number of those simple embedded frameworks. This is a tax. This is out-of-touch city people interfering in the lives of rural people. And it's always very effective. And it seems to me that the, the climate communicators have had very good ideas and, and good policies, but they're not great at translating those ideas and policies into simple messaging. So is that partly what what you're doing here, partly addressing that problem and, and sort of operating on a a sort of a gut level in the way that the bad faith messaging can often work? I mean, a lot of the, those sort of sinister discourses are based on the tobacco industry's model. And if we think of even our colonial trauma, so much around colonialism and capitalism is about, you know, disconnecting our storylines and selling us different sorts of myths. If one of the things that we can do is really counteract by reconnecting storylines as well as our relationships to each other, developing sense of belonging, as well as our relationship to country. And in the Refuge Project, we have worked a lot with First Nations elders, you know, Narit, Carolyn Briggs, as well as Uncle Larry. When we start to reconnect our storylines, we start to see ourselves as a part of a larger ecosystem. And in doing so, we start to, you know, push back against some of these myths. 
when you asked this question, it made me think about a, a chance conversation I had with James Hogan from Dismog blog a few years ago. Um, James Hogan is the chair of the David Suzuki Foundation in Canada. Um, we had this conversation around propaganda and the right, and he spoke a lot about how um, the climate deniers and right-wing media, they do everything to shut down public discourse through propaganda. And the rationale for doing that is to confuse, to obscure, and to manipulate information. And then what they do with that is that they create divisions or teams that undermine people's confidence in each other, uh, as well as facts and as well as leadership. And when they do this, it reinforces feelings of inertia and apathy. But one of the ways that we can defeat this fanaticism or the seeding of self-interest is by really leaning into some of these tensions or these conversations that we're not having or conversations that are outside of our social bubbles. Um, we all have spheres of influence. We all have ways in which we can connect with others. And that's where we can start. You know, Felix Guattari talks about cultivating dissensus and when we engage critically with topics and issues, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can agree on some things like, you know, the fact that we want our children and our next generations to be able to thrive. We want access to fresh water. We want to be able to breathe clean air. And when we work with our spheres of influence, you know, with refuge, we would often say, bring somebody with you. And by bringing plus one, you know, when we had the next iteration, we'd often see that person bring somebody else um, to one of the events. But one of the things about working in this climate change space for a really long time is that nobody wanted to have discussions about climate change in the arts for a long time. Projects wouldn't get funded. I had artists who would, who, you know, I curated an exhibition who artists said, please don't include me being an environmental artist in this exhibition because it would undermine the commercial viability of, of my work. And so I think that that's, it's interesting now how many artists are actually coming to the table. And a lot of that is, um, I see as being in relation to the failure of Copenhagen, which, you know, everyone had really thought that this was going to be where we would get a legal binding international agreement on climate change. And we didn't to the shock of many. And there were a lot of people saying, you know, what can we do about this? And this is when I think we started to see more artists stepping up to the table and starting to engage with climate-related discourse. What else has changed there, though? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this marginalisation of, of environmentally-themed art in the art world and the fact that things are changing. I mean, is the change happening partly because people are more concerned with what's happening with the climate and it's just a it's a topic or a subject, if you like, that's got more sort of heat around it? Or is there something about the way in which environmentally-themed art is being produced? I mean, your own work, for example, you're not just you know, sitting in a studio, putting paint on a canvas. Not that there's, any, not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is, it, it seems that there's a lot more room for experimentation in, in environmentally themed art. I think experimentation is the number one thing that we can do as artists in terms of contributing to the climate emergency discourse and sharing our skills around experimentation. Experimentation is about posing a number of questions, you know, and um, having reflection and enjoying and engaging in, in a process-based um, practice. So it's not about something that is going to be exhibited in a white cube to a discrete elite audience, you know, um, something that gets exhibited and then boxed up and put away. It's something that we can actively 
engage with non-artists and other professionals and experts and community members. So um, experimentation is something that the sciences understand. The, the difference with the arts is that we deal with risk very differently. Um, you know, in a scientific experiment, you know, you state your hypothesis. And even if midway through the experiment, you realize that your results aren't what you, you thought they would be, you can't change the course. Whereas in the arts, you can change the course and you can change the scope and you can bring in other collaborators and you can do further research. And, you know, the context starts to determine the form. And that's one of the things that's really excited about the arts and experimentation. And it's something that we have very much grounded in the Refuge Project. So in thinking also about the question around environmental art or it's marginalization in the art world. You know, environmental art has been called, you know, we've, we've heard of land art, art and nature, earthworks. There are a lot of limitations to these terms within the art world and outside of it. And, you know, from between the 1960s and the 1990s, many environmental works were largely ignored by the contemporary art world. And this is predominantly because the works existed either temporarily or permanently outside of the art world. And they didn't necessarily conform to conventional curatorial modes or conventions of the art market. They couldn't be capitalized. And the art critic, Susie Gablet, one of the things that she said in, I, I believe it was her book, Ecoventions, she said that just because, you know, artists work with materials from nature or use earth movers to move dirt, it doesn't automatically imply ecological consciousness or an engagement with issues such as climate change. We are seeing artists engage with climate change. We are seeing them engage with climate change in all different ways. You know, we're seeing photographers like Edward Bertinsky or Sebastiano Salgado really looking at the devastation of resource extraction. Um, there's artists such as Debbie Simmons or Lucien Ricard who are really looking at extinction events and biodiversity loss. Kim Williams and Lucas Eileen have been doing some really interesting work up in New South Wales, Queensland, looking at agriculture and pesticide use and how it's impacting land and the coral reef devastation. And also looking at how artists and communities and farmers can work together in terms of land regeneration. And then you see some really fantastic work being done in the climate justice space, looking at structural injustices um, affecting marginalized communities and artists such as um, the Tongan dancer, Latai Tamayapeo and Keg D'Souza are exemplary um, examples of artists working in, in the, that space as well. So where does all this sit in relation then to the art market? If we look at how production has become a social value, I mean, you've written about this and, and, and how our notion of social progress is linked to the progress of material production. There are some really interesting questions to, to ask here about art and the art industry. And I guess the first of those questions would be, to what extent do you think environmental art exists or, or should exist to push back against that discourse of of production and efficiency? You know, I, I think we need new tables, we need new boxes, we need new ways of working. We're working within a different context of the now in terms of the climate emergency, and it has to shape the ways in which we work as artists, the ways in which we work as communities. 
We're seeing museums, we're seeing art galleries, we're seeing some of the subject matter and some of the curatorial exhibitions that are coming out, you know, they are addressing the subject matter. But where we're seeing, I think, some of the most innovative work is in art and performance, where artists are engaging communities in sort of participatory events, um, you know, speculative imagining, um, thinking about what the world could be. Um, We're seeing it in storytelling, in books that are being published. I mean, one of the things about when you're exhibiting work, like, I mean, because I originally came from a visual arts practice and I still make drawings. One of the things about when you're working in predominantly visual arts is that often your audience is experiencing the work without the artist being present. And you might have like a didactic panel that explains the work on the wall. But when you have a more performance or participatory experience, you as the audience, you're engaged in more of a physical experience. And if we go back to the Center for Environmental Decisions, um, where they say, you know, that experiential scenarios are more engaging with people um, in terms of relating to the information, they're taking it in, not from that sort of ocular centric sort of perspective of just a visual experience, they're taking it in a more embodied way. And it sparks conversation and engages people on that sort of visceral level. You know, when I put up a drawing, I don't know what the audience member is necessarily experiencing. I'm not seeing their body language. And percentage-wise, I think it's like 70% of our communication is through body language. And so the, the visual experience doesn't always engage in a conversation. And I think that one of the most powerful things that we can do in the performance space is that we're often seeing the dialogue happen. And we need to have more dialogue about the predicament that we're in right now. So what's the role of aesthetics then in that kind of art? And I, I guess there's a question there about what your understanding of, of aesthetics even is. I mean, to me, it suggests something to do with a sense of mystery, you know, something that works on you in a way which can't quite be understood. And if we're talking about art that has an urgent social message, it, it has a, a concept that's very readily understandable. What's the role of aesthetics? How does aesthetics work in that kind of situation? I was trained in a formalist school in Alberta, Canada. And so I have a, a, a strong appreciation for material handling and, um, and craftsmanship and the maker's hands. And so Lucas Eileen talks about, he, he has um, this Venn diagram that he did in 2014, and he puts together, you know, art activism and academia, and the center is the sweet spot. You know, the, the desire to understand complex things, the desire to appreciate the aesthetics, and the desire to have a social impact or a social influence. And in the context of the climate emergency, in the context of where we are right now, there's still a role for the aesthetic object or the aesthetic experience. But because we are operating within this climate emergency context, there is just as much of a need to have that social value as well as the rigor, you know, to understand that we are living in uncertain, complex times. And for us to experience an art object or an aesthetic experience, to have the sort of other complexities at play 
so that when you see a performance that afterwards you're sitting there and you're unpacking that sort of a complexity, it's, it's exercising our minds in a way in which we, um, it's building it to a certain degree, a survival skill, you know, to be able to deal with, you know, the complexities that we might be facing in the future. Jen Ray, she's based in Castlemaine in central Victoria, and she's doing some really interesting work. There's a lot going on with Jen, and the best thing I can do is uh, direct you to her website, which you can find via this website, The Philosopher's Zone. And as I mentioned earlier, Jen Ray will be speaking at a free public event in Melbourne later this month, A Call to Art. It's going to be a, a live panel discussion between Jen and fellow artists Patricia Piccinini and Brian Martin. And they'll be talking about the relationship between making art and dealing with the climate crisis. So that's A Call to Art. It's on Saturday the 26th of February at 4pm at the Capitol in Swanston Street, Melbourne. And again, you can find all the details on the Philosopher's Zone website. And that's it from me, David Rutledge, this week. I'm on Twitter at David P Zone, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now.